Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, an interview show all about art, craft, and creativity. Well, if you couldn't express yourself, how would you de-stress yourself? And if you couldn't make and build and sing, and knit and paint and dance and spin, would you go crazy? Well, if you're going crazy, here's something amazing. Craft sanity, craft sanity, art and craft creativity, interviews with people who make, they are here to help keep you sane. Craft sanity, craft sanity, craft sanity. Hello and welcome to episode 202. On this episode, I'm going to bring you the story of a fellow loom maker, her name is Angela Smith, and she's the owner and creative director of the Houston, Texas-based tool and supply business called Pearl and Loop. As many of you know, owning a handmade business can be a wild ride. There are ups and downs and just crazy things that happen that we don't plan for. Some of us are doing things that we never even set out to to do. You know, I, I, I make looms, and I've been doing that since 2009. It wasn't really part of my master plan. In a similar respect, Angela Smith made the transition from real estate to loom making. And while this is not a common path taken by most people leaving the real estate industry, that didn't stop Angela. She has made a real go of it and has built her business quickly and pretty aggressively. She has been really having a wild ride lately. In July, she was celebrating the patent notification she received for one of her portable loom designs. Then in August, she was riding out Hurricane Harvey with her staff and experienced a bit of survivor's guilt that the business and all their homes were spared. So the interview that you're about to hear was recorded before the hurricane. And then I communicated with Angela afterwards and asked her if we could talk again so I could kind of update the story because that would have been a real gap in my reporting if I talked to someone in Houston. But I can assure you right now that Angela's business was not damaged. Her house was not damaged. Her staff is okay. She's okay. Our hearts go out to the folks that have not recovered as quickly because this is um, there's a big mess that's going to take a long time to clean up. I want to take a quick moment to celebrate and thank my Patreon sponsors for helping to keep the show going. Special thanks also goes out to all the folks who correspond with me and send in their support directly to just help keep things going. I, just, I so appreciate that. So grab a project and a cup of tea and settle in for a conversation with Angela from Pearl and Loop. I founded Pearl and Loop legally in 2011 with all the corporation documents, but we really didn't start as a functioning business, like the first full year in business was 2013 with a, a website up going. So I'm not always sure what I should say is the that start date of the company. But And we are located in Houston and uh, we operate our studio workshop out of a studio in the Art Square Studios in East Downtown Houston. I started in, in a card table with, you know, card table chairs uh, in my home 
uh, studio. I call it my home studio, but it was a second. It was a guest bedroom. And it was just me and my cat, two cats and two dogs. And uh, <laughs> and I went through the same thing that you're going through. When we started the business, uh, I was I was a retailer mostly. I bought other people's kits and yarn and sold that at craft shows and stitches shows. And I had stuff on all three floors of my townhouse. And um, one time my husband... Uh, he just couldn't take it anymore, and he saw an article in the paper about these this building being remodeled, re, redone, and he called and got me an appointment for a studio. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yes. Yeah, I but, wouldn't have done it. Yeah, so that's really great. So what year was that when you moved your your uh, business out to the, the studio space? In April of 2014. Okay. And I was like the third tenant in this building so we're in a, a part of Houston that it, when you're driving around especially the first time I took a picture of the outside the, when I first came to see the studio and I mean I I felt nauseous I was like it it seemed deserted out here like there was nothing going on and it was kind of scary and then and then I was alone a lot in this big building and uh, in my old studio space was a very small space and had open ceiling so we had locked doors and walls, but open ceilings. Mm-hmm. Now we're in, we moved in 2016, we moved to one of the two studios that are upstairs. So we expanded because we bought machinery. I see. So now you have more, more space and it feels a little more, um, like you don't have that open ceiling area. So you're, it's a little more cozy. It sounds like. Yes. And, um, the old place I used to, you know, I brought in the older studio, my first one, I brought my dogs and I would always lock the door when I went down the hall to use the bathroom. <laughs> and several times I locked myself out of my space. Oh no. And the dogs are inside. Dogs are inside. Yeah. To the point where is go find a ladder, climb over the wall and get <laughs> oh down gosh. there. And so to have my own space, my own bathroom, I have a bathroom in my studio. Oh, now, that's great. So. Yeah. Then you don't have to go down the hall and like worry about locking yourself out. If you could take a moment to explain uh, what you do now, because you bought equipment and now you're making these really cool weaving looms. I would really love to hear you just describe your business a little bit, like what it's like today, what you're doing today. And then we'll kind of wind our way back to your creative roots and kind of tell the story of how you got to this, the present day. But first, I think we need to make sure everyone's on the same page and they know what you make. We have our own laser machine. I have two rooms in my studio and I'm in my, my office right now. And it's where I do all of the designing. I'll come up with a creative idea, sketch it out. And then Missy will um, translate that sketch into a, a format that, that speaks to the laser. And then we can literally come up with an idea and have a prototype in hours. Sometimes it's, you know, it's difficult and we, you know, to kind of work through the kinks. We produce our swatch maker three in one weaving loom. And that's really what's got us started. And that's patented now. We came up with the idea of a little wee weaver, minute weaver and the bracelet loom. And, and then as I, research and try to find things that support the product. We manufacture them here in our studio. We buy our wood from a local Houston wood supplier. I have five part-time people who uh, all have various jobs within the studio. 
they're paid a living wage. They sand the wood, <clears throat> varnish the wood, um, glue it. Uh, we package everything here. We buy everything we can from a U.S. supplier. That's and great. Very rarely, occasionally, we go. We have to go outside the U.S. to, to but it's North American. Our goal is to provide kits or products to people with everything they have in it to hit the ground running. Sometimes that means, you know, we got to find little you know, jewelry findings or something like that. And then when we run into uh, walls, so to speak, with the supplies we need, or maybe it doesn't have the look that we're trying to get or the simplicity, then we turn around and make it ourselves. And that's great. So because you have that, the laser cutting abilities in house, you can, you can do that. So that's awesome. Yes. Yeah. So do you have a background in weaving yourself? No, <laughs> I never wove until I think 2013. I was at a craft show and someone handed me a weaving loom. The first time I did it, I did it all, the whole thing, warped it and wove with it all with the same strand of yarn. I didn't separate the warp from the weft. Oh, boy. What were you working with? What kind of yarn were you working with? I really have no idea. It was something that was at, like, the Yellow Rose Fiber Festival. Okay. That someone had picked up, and uh, I was playing with it in my hotel room that night. And so was this a small loom, kind of like what you make, or a bigger loom? or? It was about the size of our regular stash blaster looms. Heavier. I would buy these looms and sell them, resell them. But when I got the looms, what was interesting is they were not finished. So there'd be some rough edges. The instructions were four sentences. I didn't speak weave. Like, I didn't know what that meant. Set up the warp, use this for the weft. All that terminology meant nothing to me. And one of the challenges also was that the loom was made by hand, traditional woodworking method. It could take us six weeks to get 20. That was very hard for us to um, plan with that. But at the time, we were very small. You know, I had this loom. I had all this yarn uh, when I, you know, I sold yarn. And I had this idea to kit it, like make it cute. And so I would get the cotton bag, get little snips, bun uh, break apart the yarn, make it into cute little balls, and use the instructions that the loom came with. And then other shops, other businesses would say, could you do that for us? But I couldn't because I was buying that loom at such an expensive price that I couldn't turn around and resell it. I'd be reselling it at market value. And then that particular business would have a product that was too expensive for the market. So I just, you know, like said, oh, you can do this on your own. And then over time, I had asked my customers, um, you know, like, do, do you understand these instructions? Are they helpful? And they all said, no, it just doesn't make any sense to us. So then I wrote my own instructions and did photos. And that was just the nature of what I had to do. I didn't know there were any other ways of doing things. And when I moved into the studio space down the hall from me, was a laser studio and they offered classes on laser basics. And then all of a sudden I realized, oh, I can redesign the loom into something that could be made in minutes at a fraction of the cost I was paying. And so that changed everything, it sounds like, for your business. It was life-changing. The, the way the original loom that I'd gotten was made, it was just a beautifully well-made 
uh, hand loom and heavy and, uh, but you couldn't make them very quickly. And, um, and we had to rely on getting the loom and then the, the maker would send it to somebody to, I think they use like a router or CNC machine to engrave our logo. And sometimes that person would decide he wanted to put the logo on horizontally or, you know. Oh, so you could, yeah. So you couldn't regulate how your, how it looked. Right. Yeah. So I'd be going to the show and have 20 looms with the logo in the wrong direction. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, you know, but that was just the way we, I didn't know there was another alternative. And so when we, started with the laser then that opened up a whole other world like oh my gosh would this and then we were making it and then someone said don't you want to test it and I was like holy cow I forgot to test it because I was not a weaver and so it worked the testing worked and then I realized um I took the, the little um sample loom with me to a stitches midwest show and showed it to one of the uh, vendors that I always saw at the shows and they said if you put our logo on it we'll buy a hundred Wow. And we did it. <laughs> and they sold out in like two days of their hundred and then they ordered another hundred. That's when we realized, oh, we're kind of onto something here. And that was what year when you started the laser cutting? That was in 2014. Okay. So then in 2015, at that point, I was renting time on um, the laser machines and this laser business. That's what they did. They sold time on that. I, I hired somebody to stand over the laser to watch it because you had to you know, be practice safety. Then um, I would be down the hall in my studio doing whatever marketing or filling orders and, and whatnot. And then we would you know try to redesign new products. And we got to the point where we needed so much more time on that laser and that that laser business their business model changed where they were doing a lot more custom work so they needed that laser for their better business model and at that time we were prototyping the Swatchmaker 3-in-1 and I when I was making that Swatchmaker 3-in-1 I thought oh no what kind of people we you know who who cares about this and uh, Liz Gibson from the yarn worker is the one who it called me up and suggested I come up with this idea and she tested it and we worked together on making sure it met her needs. And um, literally when that product went live on January 1, I had forgotten about it. I had put it on my website. And at that time, Liz was saying, had said, I will write about it and it will be in my blog on January 1. And my experience back then had been, yeah, everybody likes to say they blog or they do this and they do that. But I hadn't met very many people who actually followed through. So I forgot about it. And I knew we, we weren't going to have any, it said in the listing, we weren't going to have any made and ready for shipping until mid-January. I had listed it and put a link because that's what Liz asked me to do. I never, you know, no one had bought it by that time. You know, that was like December 20th. And then on January one, my husband and I were sitting there um, having coffee and he said, why is your phone hot and bright? Like, what? And I looked up, I picked up my phone and I saw like a hundred orders. Wow. For a product amount that I had 
never seen. You know, like you know how you get orders, you know, oh, it's that plus shipping. Oh, they must have ordered XYZ product. And I thought I'd been hacked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I oh, hacked. And somebody had put a fake product, product or something. My- yeah. And you're like, what is this? Liz Gibson had done exactly what she said she was going to do. And the readers on her blog had turned around and bought that tool. At that point, I had so many orders that we couldn't even, there was no way we could fill it using the machinery we were using. You know, the amount of time we had with renting it. All of a sudden, this space opened up. We had to have a space with a ceiling because of the sound of the laser machine and the filtration system. And all my banker and um, thinking, oh, they'll never lend me money, you know, whatever. And I said, here's my situation. And I have a stack of these orders I can't fulfill. I applied for a business loan to buy the machinery and I was approved in hours because wow. they said the order my my collateral in a way. And um, I had been in talks with the laser company for a while, so I knew what kind of laser I wanted. I knew what specifications I needed for my filtration system. And that the filtration system was our biggest challenge um, with this with this machinery. And in a matter of two weeks, I moved, I got into the space and got my laser, three weeks laser, the space got running. Was it nerve wracking to have those orders waiting while you're doing this major like upgrade to your business? Yes and no. Um, we always communicate with our customers and we let them know. We'll acknowledge, oh, we got your order. Um, we expect it'll ship, you know, with the first wave of product, you know, by the middle of the month because we were still using the other renting time on the other laser machine, but we can only produce a few a day. And, uh, we just communicated with all of our customers. And at that time I told the two staff people I'd hired, you know, the worst that can happen is that someone says, I don't want to wait anymore. And we just give them their money back. But, um, it it was stressful. You know, I started out the Christmas holiday season, just, you know, moseying along. And all of a sudden, you know, a few days later, I was planning a move and I had to buy furniture and I had to upgrade electricity, you know, I have a certain um, electrical requirements and a dedicated line going to space and I had to make sure that was done in coordination with my landlord in time for the laser to be delivered and the guys were bringing the laser down from Dallas and they were setting it up. So if the electricity didn't work, that was a whole wasted trip. It was a lot of things that had to come together. And so that, yes, that was sleepless for for three weeks. I just, my brain would not shut off worrying about all those things coming together. But ironically, the customers, our wholesale customers and our retail customers were very nice about it. They all understood and they were, they, I didn't have any headaches from that. So have you become a weaver now that you make looms? Uh, I consider myself more of a business person. I'm obsessed. I dream about processes and manufacturing. And I love to make the samples. But frankly, when I go home at night, I don't weave. <laughs> what, what do you do? I'm interested. What are your hobbies? When you're done with your business day, what do you do? What do you like to do? Well, I have two dogs and two cats and an OCD household. Um, no, I don't have human children. Um, 
and my husband and I love to cook and make cocktails and go out to dinner in um, in Houston. And we are proud that we're on first name basis with many bartenders. <laughs> <laughs> and when we are deciding what what do we want to do tonight, we're like, gosh, who haven't we seen? You know, lately. Oh, who, that's who nice. Has- yeah, so it's a person. It's personal. Yes, and and we're we're foodies, and just have you know, they're just restaurants that we go to, and um, we know other people who are just like us, and we're, we you know, we all hang out, and it's like a mini party, um, and that's our our main entertainment outside of our our travel and our um, my husband and I are shareholders in a vineyard in. Um, Mendoza, Argentina. So we are really into into wine and enjoy it and love tasting it. And that is what we focus on when we get home. And being in Houston and traffic patterns, it takes us so long to get home from work that we kind of just come home and get ready and go back out. Do you um, find that the people that you hang out with after work, do those folks, have you converted anyone to weaving? Uh, have you pulled out a pocket weaver and like <laughs> got somebody going with some yarn or is that just a totally separate life? It's a totally separate life. Um, in fact, it's like this industry, the whole Instagram going to trade shows, it is so wonderful. I love it. I'm surrounded by people. I, I mean, I'm good with my hands and I enjoy crafty things but I'm just more of the business person, but I enjoy it and I get it, identify with it and I can appreciate it. But there is virtually no one I interact with in Houston who feels the same way. Now, for people who don't know anything about lasers, these can be monstrous, huge machines. Um, the technology is upgrading, so um, you can they, they make them smaller now where it's, it doesn't take a whole, take up an entire room, but um, they're they're pretty big. And for you, was this, when you were trying to decide like, how big to go, how big of looms do you want to actually be able to make? Or do you like making small looms? I prefer small looms. We have what we call placemat loom, a placemat size loom. And it was our second product that we made. The size of the laser bed had to accommodate that, which is 18 inches by 13. And so the beds might be, they, they tended to be like 12 by 18, 12 by 24. So I had to go bigger than I wanted uh, to accommodate that product. But I love small and cute more right. than I love big and useful. Um, and then when we're, I was looking at different sizes of the laser, because by the time you're buying this laser, whether you buy one that's you know 18 by 24 inches versus 18 by 32 inches, and you're financing it, you're looking at a very small incremental difference in the financing cost. And I look at everything as, okay, all I have to do is sell two more looms a month to cover that difference. That was one component. Um, one thing about lasers, so my laser is about the bigger, a bit bigger than a wash machine, uh, like a wash machine and a half. The biggest challenge with the laser is the filtration system. And most everyone I talk to um, pumps a blower, pumps all that, all those fumes outside a window. 
And my husband and I uh, felt that we had a civic duty to take care of the environment and not do that. And so a big expense for us is our, we have a standing filtration system and it's a three tier filter and the filters are very expensive. And, uh, that system draws a lot of electricity. So we had a big learning curve for six months not uh, with the amps and how it, it drew and we, um, tripped things and it was just crazy. And, but you can walk into our studio and the laser's running and we might be cutting, occasionally we cut some acrylic, but you don't smell, you might smell wood, but you don't smell fumes. It's going through a superior filtration system and we do not pump into the air. That's great that you did that because that is uh, something that often people take those shortcuts and they save money, but in the end, damage the environment. Yes. And then... Then there's like the maintenance because I'm upstairs. So if I was blowing out of a window, I'd have to get on the curved roof that's behind our space to oh. maintain the blower. Oh, and no. yeah. So I, have a, I have a business background. I have an MBA. My focus was in operations management. And um, I did consulting for several years. And then I was in real estate. So I got really used to thinking about anything I'm going to take on how do I solve the problems? How, who do I have to depend on to solve the problem? And is it cheaper to go this cheap route for, you know, pick any example, a cheaper route, but if something goes wrong, I then have to hire somebody and it could take them how many days and how much downtime does that cost and labor and, you know, orders that are not going out to shops that might have already paid versus this is a known quantity. The, 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 the filtration system costs X. It can cost me about 2000 to $2,400 every eight months to replace the filters. And, um, but I know that and it works. And so I just kind of am able to factor that in because that's a known quantity as opposed to an unknown kind of cost savings. Right. I'm too business focused on that. But those are the things I like will think about. And I wanted independence. I did not want to be dependent. Independence it was so important to me. I wanted to know that if um, something happened to this building or the location or I had to move my business for any reason, that I could literally, it was just a matter of getting the laser and the filter to the new location. I didn't have to worry about permits and permission to cut holes in the walls and pump out or what all the factors that go into that. I could just plug in and and start again as long as I had the electrical component. If we could back up a little bit, I'd be really curious to hear. Were you a crafty kid? My grandmother owned a seamstress business in Chicago. So my grandmother um, was born uh, and raised in Mexico and um, eventually made her way uh, into Texas and then on to Chicago and she had a series of sewing machines and she ran a cleaners and I would go stay with her, you know, one or two weeks a summer. And I liked hand sewing. I'd make little bags for Barbie dolls with bric-a-brac and I'd use colored thread to do cross stitch, you know, cross stitch things on it. I would find, I would use rubber bands to do, I could solve problems and I would hand sew. So I was comfortable with um, and I had an appreciation for all, um, you know, 
crafty type things. And I love this industry and I love the fiber arts business. And it's, that's a rewarding thing because you can go into business in other areas and it might not be exciting or you, you maybe don't like the people or you don't, the, the business generates a lot of stress or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And being able to take um, my business skills and apply it to an industry that I find to be absolutely delightful and the customers lovely and the businesses that buy from us amazing. Uh, it's a very rewarding experience. And so you got into the fiber arts and, and the crafty side of things in 2011 when you started your own business. Um, what were you doing before that? I was a real estate agent here in Houston for 10 years. That was a great career as as well. I worked for a, a wonderful company here. Then one particular quarter, the first quarter of 2011, I had built up my business and um, repeat business. And I had hit top producer in my office for that quarter, one of the top producers. And that was uh, there were so many successful people in my real estate office, Greenwood King Properties, that it never occurred to me that I would ever sell enough to be in that category. And I was so busy that I didn't even know that I was close to it. And it got announced at one of our weekly sales meetings. And I was blown away and had all these other realtors, you know, congratulate me because put your picture in paper and all that stuff in the real estate section. Then I realized, well, wait a minute, that was a lot of weekends, a lot of nights, a lot of compromise time off. I never had the, I, I would think my day would be empty, but then some dramas might come up and then the day it never worked out the way I wanted it to, or the, or the time I spent with my family, my husband or extended family didn't work out that way. And I realized, well, is this as good as it feels and if so, am I willing to gamble my time ongoing to maintain this level of success? And that was in April of 2011. And at that point, I became very focused on trying to find a business that I could buy or, or create. And because uh, I realized why I loved real estate and loved the way um the company handled things and ran the business and it taught everything. A lot of what I do in this business, I learned from the leaders of Greenwood King, you know, about making things right, doing the right thing. You know, if there's a problem, you solve it, you know, maintain the customer relationship. Mm-hmm. And those skills are very valuable. And I wouldn't, I don't think I'd have that aspect if I hadn't been in real estate for all those years. I had tried to uh, buy a little local yarn shop here in Houston, and they weren't interested in selling. Um, They're since closed. And uh, tried to open up my own yarn shop. When I met with bankers, they were kind of skeptical and saying, yeah, you know, who does that anymore? I didn't know people still knitted or crocheted. That's crazy talk. That's totally crazy talk. But anyway... (laughs) It was. It was 2011. Yeah, because people uh, were doing that. Yeah. It was different. Instagram wasn't what it then, what it is today. And I flipped my plan and I decided I'm going to start an online based business. And 
grow it um, slowly until all of a sudden it took off crazy. (laughs) When was it clear to you that things were taking off? I think like in all businesses, we all doubt ourselves or wonder, are we going down the right path? Um, Do people really want this product? And I'd have to say in, in September of 2015, I was hitting a low. It was, you know, I'm in Houston, so it's it's hot, 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 nine months out of the year. And I remember driving my car thinking, why am I doing this and hauling these, you know, going to these shows, it's so hot. It's, you know, am, am, am I, is this a good use of my resources? I went through a real low period on that, not knowing how to tell if my, if I, if my, if I should continue going, I was at a point where, okay, maybe I could make a decision in the next few months and, and go yay or nay. And then I went to the Houston international quilt market. That's to the trade right before I did the trade show. I had so many people crowding my booth to talk about what we did. And that was like, yes, I'm on to the right thing asking us about it, looking at our packaging, giving us feedback, our instructions, our photography, um, how we market the product. And I had been taking feedback from people for the whole past year. And I listened to feedback. Um, There's no point in reinventing the wheel. Someone else has already done it. Um, Learn from their, their mistakes. I was like, okay, I'm committed. And then, you know, the whole... Swatchmaker 3 and 1 took off, and then I realized I'm good at coming up with new ideas. And I really developed my wholesale business right around that time. It really picked up. I found that I had a knack for that because, um, you know, every day when I'm driving into work, I think about what can I do with Pearl and Loop that will enable all those small independent shops that buy from us to be more successful and make it easier for them to sell our products. That's the angle I take on everything we do. And so do you have a lot of communication with your wholesale customers, especially? I would say so. It's just kind of always been that way. Um, We get some shops that'll say, can you put this together for us or do something special? And we can, and, and we do. And we go to, um, we go to the TNNA, trade shows and we do quilt market and quilt festival because that's here you know five blocks from my studio and we we don't sit down and make samples or work on on projects we stand up and constantly talk to our customers and ask what what do you think you need what what would you if you're looking at this what would how would you change it to make it successful for your shop and they may or may not order from us but we did the Houston quilt market last year and it wasn't um, sales wise. It wasn't, um, it wasn't anything. We didn't knock it out of the park. Let's put it that way. But we took the opportunity to chat with all of these thread vendors and these thread vendors came to us and said, could you make something like this so we could use our threads? And all of a sudden, that became a whole new product. The Minute Weaver was launched three weeks later. Even though we didn't hit the, the dollar amounts that we wanted to, I've made that up many times over with the sales of the Minute Weaver. When did you launch the Minute Weaver? 
that would have been November, December of 2016. So it's a little square. That was after the Wee Weaver, which we launched in August of last year of 2016. And um, and for people, so for people who might not be familiar with it, the we the okay, so the very first loom that you came out was, with was which one? Was our stash blaster. Okay, and how big is that loom, and what can you make on it? It's about seven and a half by five and a half inches, and you make just an average size coaster. And then the next loom that you made was the placemat loom. That's eighteen inches by thirteen inches. And both those looms, and we use the name Stash Blaster to help people think, oh, what can I do with all that yarn that I don't want, to, you know, my stash. Right. It's a clever, and, clever. Uh, right. Right. So we, we, we did that. And then um, I wanted something that was quicker. I'm about quick gratification. And that's when I came up with the idea of the Wee Weaver with the little tools and everything that goes in, in it, something. And that was for shops. Um, what I was at a, um, the Houston fiber festival in June of 2016. And someone had taught a class with our stash blaster looms, a regular kind of rectangle coaster size. And that's an example of, that's just what other people, the size other people were using. So that's what we did versus saying, well, why do we do it that way? Does it have to be that way? Is there a better way? Is Or is it just this is the way it's always been done? These are the dimensions. So we were at this Houston Fiber Festival, and some people had taken the class, and they came by our booth, and they said, we love your loom, but it's very hard to take a class and not finish. The customer who, who was had paid for the class from this, this teacher who taught it said, I don't feel satisfied. And when I talked to um, someone else who was familiar with teaching, their attitude was, well, you should just be able to finish this in a two-hour class. And that's when I was thinking, okay, but the customer is telling you they don't feel satisfied. And who am I to argue with my customer? And what can I do so that shops can, a lot of shops teach two-hour classes, what can I do so that their customer leaves fully satisfied and knows how to take the, the piece off the loom? So that's what they never got to in the classes. They didn't finish it. So that's when I did the Wee Weaver. And we say, you can teach a class on our Wee Weaver 4.0. So that's four little slots per inch. with bulk. You can use bulky yarn. And you can show your students how to warp up the loom, how to weave on the loom, how to use the little tools and how to take the piece off the loom all in a two hour window. Now, did you have more looms that came out before your swatch maker three in one? No. Okay. Oh, so we did the stash blaster regular loom, the stash blaster placemat loom. Then we did the swatch maker three in one. That was in January of, of, of 2016. And that, you know, just, the back orders and all that. We did not fill all of our back orders until April, end of April of 2016. And then um, we caught our breath, went to TNNA, um, caught our breath again after we filled those TNNA orders, started thinking about presenting at the quilt market. And then that's when we took advantage. Instead of getting emotionally down the dumps, we were like, this is an opportunity to talk to so many people 
and hear what they have to say um, and take advantage of all that knowledge, industry knowledge and product knowledge. And then that's when we like, let's turn this around. We're going to make the Minute Weaver. Or I'm sorry, we started with the Wee Weaver and then um, the Minute Weaver. And then we're thinking, well, gosh, we could go back to the Wee Weaver and make different gauges. Mm-hmm. It doesn't all have to be four. Oh, we can do 10.0, 12.0. And that's what we did. When you decided to make that um, three-in-one, what was the inspiration for that? Liz Gibson from The Yarn Worker. So Liz Gibson called us in August of 2015. I had met her and, and t- talked to her at the National Lead Arts Association trade shows. And um, she called me up and she said, I'm writing a book and I need to fail faster. And I was like, what? <laughs> And she said, I need to know how this fabric is going to drape. And by the time I set up my bigger loom and then get going, I've lost too much time. I need something that's portable. And I'd like to have three options in one product. And so when she emailed me, ironically, I almost responded right back to say, no, I'm not doing custom work. No. Um, but I had just listened to this book by William Shatner about just say yes. <laughs> and I thought, well, let's see what happens. So I called her back. And this is another example of talking to somebody versus um, having that conversation and hearing her voice and hearing what she needed was a totally different experience than just having an email interaction. I started thinking, I'm like, I could do that. And then all of a sudden within about, 20 minutes into the conversation, in my brain, I saw the layout of the product, how I could do it, and because uh, it's a tool. And so um, how we could stack the holes and get 10 in an inch and 12 in an inch, and what we could do because of what the how the person was going to use that product, as opposed to somebody who's trying to weave a coaster, that probably wouldn't have worked really well. Then we, I sketched it out, and we just started prototyping it. Our biggest challenge was finding materials that would we could cut through. We had problems with our materials more than anything else. And then we would make it and send some over to Liz and see what she thought. And this went back and forth for a couple of months. I didn't really know how it was going to go. I didn't have a way of measuring this market or knowing, but I knew that I was willing to create the idea and put it out there. And I think that's when people got to know us. Right, because this loom is, I mean, I have an extensive loom collection, and this loom is different than any other looms in my collection uh, because of that versatility to change the the um, ends per inch without switching a reed out or switching to a different loom entirely. So that is really cool. And when did you decide to pursue a patent on that? I pretty much knew I was going to do a patent the minute I created it in my head I thought that it was something my husband and I talked about and it was like wow I researched it and no one's making anything like this and I just wanted to see if I could do it and so we started the patent process I filed for my patent in March or April of 2016 and I got notification on July 7th this year so a little over a year I got my patent that's great because so you start out with the provisional then for um you applied for the provisional and then um you have you actually have the patent a year later 
Yes. Uh, so now our looms will be great with those numbers. Yeah, congratulations. Back. That's really awesome. Did you work with an attorney or did you pursue this on your own through the patent office? Yes. Okay. I worked with an attorney. So when I started the business, I the the most important thing I did was select an attorney. I I had an attorney and a CPA, and I'm married to a CPA, but I hired a CPA to help me set up and structure this business and protect my trademark. So I have a trademark on Stash Blaster. I have a trademark on Pearl and Loop. Both are registered trademarks. And then when I did the patent, I went back to that attorney and his, he has a relative who is a weaver. So he got it. But I think what helped me get this very quickly is I had already, I was already going to do this product patent or no, it was already going. And I had the photos and the step-by-step instructions. And my attorney was able to use that, a lot of my own work to apply for the patent. So it's not cheap, but it's not, it wasn't as bad for me as I've heard other stories of um, people who've gone down this, this road. And um, it was, uh, it was just simpler. And I kind of just had this desire to say I owned a patent. I wanted to be a patent owner, an inventor. Seeing that word on the, on the documents that I got from my attorney and it says inventor, Angela Smith, it feels really cool to be an inventor. For this product, I mean, just looking at the three in one, it's kind of a, was a no brainer to, to pursue that because it is just so clear cut different than everything else that's out there. So congratulations on that. That's really exciting. Thank you. And, and, and honestly, I don't know that I would do it again. I wouldn't, unless I come up with this really cool invention, I don't know that I'd go through the process again. It was anxiety. I mean, every month you'd sit back, you lay awake at two o'clock in the morning wondering what's this legal bill going to look like this month. Do you care to share how much your patent costs? I think it's important to share, and I kind of don't want to, but I think it's important for people to know it, it did cost about $30,000. Okay. Yeah. And you're in fees. And this is for a product that you sell for $49. So, um, but you're selling a lot of these. So you're saying you probably wouldn't do this again, just because, you know, if you add another loom to your product line, having that expense where you could just start making money and protect it with your trademark. And that's what you're thinking in the, is another. Right. Yeah. Right. So we have the bracelet loom now and we're working on that round piece of loom art. And I think that the difference that I, the way I, categorize it my brain is our products we create them we love creating them i think they're simple they're probably not new ideas they're things that people have been doing for a long time people have done circular limbs you know different ways but that that's just we're just taking a different approach to an old idea and uh, so we're not that's not unique and uh and my I'm hoping to inspire people. The difference with the Swatchmaker 3-in-1 is that's a very specific tool with a very specific purpose. And I also looked at it as a piece of um, business intellectual property. And that makes up value in my business. Uh, 
for that one, just like the, our trademarks do and all the work that you do, you know, for your business um, and all your materials that are copyrighted, that goes to, goes to building the value of your business, even if it's not directly seen in sales. And, um, and I, you know, was open to the idea if I ever licensed someone to make this product and distribute it to a larger market, mm-hmm. owning the patent. And, and, and we were distributing it in Canada. So when I say my legal fees were, a lot of that was just the filing fees just to get it protected in Canada. Now you could license your three-in-one to a major manufacturer. Do you think you would want to do that? I think it's good to keep your options open, but it's not a goal of mine. I really love overseeing the manufacturing I touch a component of every, me or my staff. We hand package everything. We touch everything that goes out, and and it's made the way we we process it. I I just love it, and um, I think if I got to a point where it was too big for me, um, I would see myself maybe having a partner, a manufacturing partner, so to speak, but. To be honest, when my husband and I were evaluating, do we want to do this patent? We said, how upset would we be if somebody else took the same concept of the Swatchmaker 3-in-1 and created it and owned it? And as opposed to all my other products that we make, and some of them, I, I mean, maybe the process is unique. I'm not sure, but... You know, I don't, I'm not going to get upset if someone else takes that concept and does something. There's room for all of us small small manufacturers in the marketplace. But with this one product, that would make us really upset. And uh, that's how we decided to do that, as opposed to applying that to any of our other products. So as you look going forward, do you plan to stay in the small loom business? Do you like where you're at with that? Yes, we love it. We absolutely love it. And I keep saying to my staff, oh, we'll stop making new products and we'll just focus on making samples and more patterns and with what we've got. But my brain, there are times I wake up at two in the morning, it's like popcorn is going off in my head. Is Instagram just, uh, is that your main marketing tool for your business? Yes. Um, Yes, absolutely. And then we have found that overall, our wholesale as our wholesale business, our wholesale and our retail business grows together. And um, so, the more wholesale orders we have, I think the more exposure people get to us. And then we'll also see our retail orders go up. And so, Instagram fuels that. And then what we try to do is come up with free patterns that we give. We let the shops have the electronic version of these patterns and use them however they want to create classes. We're okay if people, if if those shops print these patterns, use it to teach a class, give it away when people buy the looms, give it away when they don't buy the looms. It still says Pearl and Loop on it and we created it. And so We've, we had fun with that, it, and I do notice it, it's Instagram-driven. And one of the things 
going back to when I was younger and would sew, um, you know, back in the seventies and early eighties, that was a time when people made fun of you for sewing or liking crafts. It was a little, Oh, who's a Susie homemaker. And it felt like, Oh, that's cheesy. You know, I, I stepped away from it for 20 something years and Instagram makes it really cool. You've been through quite an adventure uh, since starting this business. And it, I mean, you've had, you've moved your business, you've invested in equipment on deadline to fill orders. And, um, and to give people perspective too, was buying a, a laser kind of like buying a, a small car or <laughs> so for the perspective of people, because, you know, a, a quilt shop, you know, might ha- decide, okay, we're going to get the long arm quilt machine you know, to do um, custom uh, quilting for people. Um, and that's a that's probably the biggest thing in the quilting industry that you would buy for your quilting business. Uh, a laser is obviously a huge investment as well. Uh, do you care to put a perspective on that so people can understand how much you, the kind of um, investments you've made in your business and growing it? When I'm talking to people here in Houston and they're like, well, you know, what do you do? And, oh, I, you know, have a laser machine and make this they're like well what's what's that I said it's just like having a a fully loaded Honda Accord (laughs) (laughs) it's like buying a Honda Accord having a car payment and ironically that is something that has the minute we did that the business grew what do you think the most important thing is when someone's about to maybe launch their own handmade business regardless of what medium they're working in uh, what do you think is the most important thing that they do before they jump in? The conversation I have with myself over and over is recognizing the true value of opportunity cost. Where I'm going with that is when I interact with some, a lot of people who run small businesses, they will tell me how they save so much money because they just spent three hours driving all around town getting materials cheaper. And I sit back and think, well, if I was in my studio and for just three solid hours focused on finishing my samples so I could make my instructions, Instagramming, replying to wholesale customer inquiries or, or even our regular customer inquiries, we, we not, we, I think we acknowledge every single email that we get from our customers how much does that contribute to a growth in sales versus focusing on saving money? I would regularly encounter folks who would try to tell me, you don't need to hire a web designer. You can take a class and learn to design your own website. It just might take you a year. Yeah. That's a, a year. You're not making money. Right. And I hear that all from people all the time um it's when they get kind of or they get afraid to grow and um you just you you know take baby steps and uh and I funded the business and the growth out of our cash out of cash flow I mean obviously there were some things you know getting started and um personal investments with a patent and um you know that I had to fund outside of the business cash flow, but you know, most, most people aren't pursuing a patent and um, 
you know, now with Shopify and all these great sources out there, you don't, it, it was just was different when I was getting started in 2011. But um, over and over, I, I see people kind of doing things that are, they're, they seem stuck and, but they keep doing the same thing over and over, but they're not growing. So being willing to hire someone, be it five hours a week, the first person I ever hired only worked for me for five hours a week. And what did you have that person do? Glue. Yeah, just gluing, <laughs> five hours of gluing. Yes, now, five how, hours of gluing. How did you decide that it would be gluing? Is it something you didn't really want to do or something that was taking too much of your time or how did you decide? It was, it was taking a lot of time. It was the bottleneck. So we had all these parts, but we couldn't finish until we glued. And the gluing was the bottleneck. So I got help with the gluing. And um, this person that I, I knew um, was helping me and she said, Angela, why don't you hire my husband? And I was sitting there thinking, I don't want to work with a man. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> this small room. I don't this is I don't know about that. You know, I thought he'd have big hands, there'd be glue all over the place. And Hector came to to my studio and he is the most meticulous gluer for all those prong pieces. Um, not all the um like on the swatch maker three and one, you know, there's no glue in those holes. He glues those so carefully. And, but when he glued that, that enabled me then to work on the laser, bring more parts. And then I would, I used to apply all the varnish and do all the sanding. And, um, but I couldn't do that and glue. So then Hector started out probably five hours a week. I think he's up to about 15 to 20. And then we hired um, Missy to help a little bit because I realized I couldn't fill my orders when I was standing over the laser in another location. And so, you know, she probably worked for me about three to six hours a week. And then I realized, holy cow, I need help filling these orders. And... Then, um, so I gradually increased her time and I gradually increased Hector's time, but I never would have gotten to that point. I'd still be only producing a certain number of looms and making a certain amount of money if I was doing it by myself. So for I you, had to, yeah, to grow, you had to expand beyond a one woman show. Right, right. And so when I hear folks say, I'm not going to hire help until I make X. But guess what? You don't make X because you don't have enough help to make X. Right. Did you notice it? I mean, did you start making more money right away because you were able to make more product? Was it just a natural yes. shift? Yeah. yeah. I got comfortable marketing. I didn't market very well because I didn't think I could meet the demand. And then as I got more help, I got more comfortable um, posting about the product. You know, probably... I don't think anyone would have noticed us posting a lot on Instagram until spring of 2016, maybe. And, um, and that was um, just because it took us from January through April to get over the backlog 
of, of orders from the Swatchmaker 3-in-1. And uh, we just didn't have time. But now we, you know, Missy works more hours. Hector works more hours. Then we hired Martha. And then Martha runs the laser for us at night. So now sometimes I'm, I'm able to reply to customer inquiries or um, come up with product designs or talk to our suppliers um, because I've got Martha running the laser. And then Martha came up with this idea to have a materials management system. And she researched it, and and I make decisions quickly because, again, the opportunity cost associated with hours and hours and hours of researching because something might cost $5 more a month than that right. wasn't worth it. And we're implementing it, and now we're, you know, we, then we hired Jonathan um, last Labor Day, and he came to me because um, the... He, Hector's wife had told him I might be hiring and I had wanted to hire and I couldn't get anybody. And then this young man reaches out and emails me and I had just decided, nope, I'm not going to hire him. I mean, not hire him. I'm not going to hire anyone. But when this young college student reached out to me, I thought, well, that took a lot. Maybe I should rethink my idea. So I brought him in. I remember saying, gosh, Jonathan, I don't know if I'm going to have one eight hours of work for you a week. Well, the young man's been working 25 hours a week for over a year. That's awesome. And so now um, we're getting um, someone to help um, deal with order fulfillment because now I get these ideas and Missy spends her time um, designing it on on the laser and prototype testing it. And uh, Martha, you know, she's running our materials database. So she's able to say, hey, Angela, uh, I was monitoring the Louette website because Louette distributes us. And she said, they're getting low on bracelet looms. You need to do that right now. And so guess what? We packed up a bunch of bracelet looms and shipped it to them. But we would never have done that if we didn't have that Martha being proactive on that because there are so many demands on uh, so many things that demand my attention. And if Louette doesn't have our product, they can't sell our product. How did you decide where to start people and how to how to make it something that you could be feel good about and and feel proud that these people are working and they have a good job and it's you know part time but it's it's worth their time to do i just was never going to only pay minimum wage um because in houston when you think about how much time it takes for some of these folks to drive in from their house um it had to be made worth their while and i also factored in the opportunity costs associated with Someone who you might get by with paying very little, they're they're going to need to earn more money. You can't live off of, you can't meet your needs on that. So I didn't want them distracted about, oh my gosh, I might be able to get this job and they'll pay 25 cents more an hour or a dollar more an hour. I didn't want to risk that. And I thought the opportunity costs associated with a stable a reliable um, group of employees. When I looked at, you know, when you're talking about a couple of dollars an hour, and if someone works 20 hours a week, let's say it's $2 an hour more than what they might make somewhere else, that's $40 a week. Well, that's a loom. Yeah. <laughs> and 
all I have to do is sell an extra limb to pay that differential. But guess what? There, I, I don't worry. I don't have any emotional worries associated with that. So I'm able to devote my energy into doing this this podcast, for example, right now, or coming up with a new product and um, having meaningful conversations with folks. You know, when we get shops that like to call us instead of sending us a, an email, listening to them and hearing, you know, and asking them, well, what does your customer like to do? And if they're when they say, what should I start with? I can take the time and energy to try to figure out where they are so I can make a recommendation for a product that's going to sell for them, which means it sells for us too. But I couldn't do that if I was constantly worried about employee turnover. I don't know if there's you have any other advice or anything else you'd like to say to the folks at home who might be, you know, like I said, uh, on the verge of trying to put their own ideas out there. I got this quote from Leah Day. She's a quilter. And I was at a quilt market (laughs) and she had said to me one day, one time, do not let perfection hinder progress. So I would say let go of the perfectionism because you'll get, if you're, if you're trying to do a business, you'll, you'll come up with a product idea and it's going to evolve no matter what. So get going because it, it it can't go anywhere until you get to that next step. And if you get bogged down by perfectionism, it just doesn't go anywhere. And it sounds like you've learned how to really channel that feedback that you get into new products and, and uh, have you changed products based on feedback? I've changed um, maybe some dimensions around. Um, I'll listen to what people say, like if something's hard to work with or you know, I've learned to ask people, you know, are, are you comfortable? Are your hands comfortable? You know, you might not like this because you're, you're you might have arth- if they have arthritis or something like that, which I wouldn't know if I hadn't been interacting with folks face to face and hearing their seeing their face and like, oh, I like this. I don't know if I can do that. And I'll say, well, can I ask why? And then they'll explain. I'm like, oh, data point. Didn't know. There's a lot of value in getting off the computer out of your home, you know, your home or your studio and getting to face the market, be it, you know, your, your wholesale customers or, you know, your retail customers at local craft shows and, and listening to what they have to say. Um, I think a long time ago, I might have been gotten my I can't recall getting my feelings hurt but I had to have gotten my feelings hurt if somebody didn't like the product or whatever, but I don't remember, I don't hold on to that. And I, I think that I don't look at any of it as rejection. Um, it's just a process and it just grows. And if, when I wrote my first, when I wrote my business plan in 2011, this is not, this doesn't represent anything that I thought we were going to be. What did you think you were going to be? A yarn shop. Yeah. And now you do business with yarn shops all across the country. Yes. And I love it. And um, I love, uh, you know, uh, when they call, maybe they'll call and say something like, ah, one of our customers said this this prong broke. 
you know, what should we do? I'm like, well, let them use it. And I'm sending you a new one today. You know, it just wood, wood has flaws. Things happen. So when customers have a problem, you know, we're able to manufacture more and get it out to them because, um, we control it. So we're able to be responsive when there's issues with our, even it, and we've had people who bought our products from other shops or vendors and, or maybe they don't remember who they got their product from, but if they call us and send us a picture and saying, Hey, this happened, we fix it. And, um, you know, we're, we're able to be really responsive Okay, you take care. All the best to you. And um, thanks again for sharing your story. You too, Jennifer. All right. And as I mentioned, I checked in with Angela after the hurricane to hear a little bit about how she was doing and how her community was doing. And this is what she had to say. All of us are kind of going through a lot of survivor guilt. But, you know, I feel like if I don't know what I'd achieve by closing my business and going down to the cleanup areas, you know, cause my staff need to make rent payments. They have to pay their rent. They have mortgages, they have car payments. So we can't just stop the business without with the, re- the repercussions would continue for months. If we just focused on cleanup instead of getting back to business. A very special thanks to Angela for coming on the show, not once, but twice, uh, the the interview and then the follow-up. I'm really glad her and her staff are okay, and it was really a great opportunity to hear her story and to get to share it with all of you. Because there are a lot of great takeaways in this episode, I know since I spoke with Angela the first time, I've been thinking a lot about opportunity costs and how I'm spending my time. It's very thought-provoking and has led me to think about my approach to business a little bit differently. And again, my business is different. I I spend most of my time during the school year, I'm advising students at a community college where I teach journalism. I advise a school newspaper as well. And my uh, loom business has always been something I've done on the side because I honestly, if I'm going to be totally honest, I would rather weave than make looms. That's probably never going to change. But the fact that I sell looms helps fund the other projects that I've done. I've been able to put some of that funding toward publishing magazine issues and other creative projects that I'm working on. And I love to talk to others about where their handmade businesses have led them. So if you have a story that you'd like to share, feel free to get in touch. You can reach me at jennifer at craftsanity.com. I will be back again with another episode soon. In the meantime craft sanity my friends it works for me thank you for listening to this episode of the craft sanity podcast to support the show click the patreon link at craftsanity.com to donate one dollar a month or buy a handmade loom or magazine at craftsanity.etsy.com same time